0: Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna.
1: And me, Frederick.
0: In this week's episode, we sit down with the guys behind the Fractal Protocol. But before we start up, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Trail of Bits. Now, just recently, a critical vulnerability was found in the certificate validation functionality on Windows 10 and Windows Server 2016-2019. This bug allows attackers to break the validation of trust in a wide variety of contexts, including HTTPS and code signing. Trail of Bits has developed a proof-of-concept exploit and put up a website called Whose Curve Is It Anyway that lets users test whether or not they're vulnerable the link to this website is added in the show notes. Now to learn more about this vulnerability and the Trail of Bits exploit, please check out their recent blog post entitled Exploding the Windows Crypto API Vulnerability. And also keep an eye on the Trail of Bits blog for security news and explanation pieces just like this one. It's linked in the show notes as well. So thank you again, Trail of Bits. And now here's our episode on Fractal. So this week, we explore the Fractal Protocol with its authors, Dev and Nick, both students of Alessandro Chiesa at UC Berkeley. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Hi. Thanks. Um, let's do our quick intros. Tell us a little bit about who you are and maybe where, how you got interested in this particular problem that you want to solve with Fractal.
2: Okay, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Nick, I'm a PhD student with Alessandro at Berkeley, and yeah, I've, I've basically been interested in more of the kind of theoretical computer science uh, side of things for a long time, and this kind of problem has very strong links with theoretical computer science, with the kind of broader complexity theory. Okay, this is something that, that you know, made it really appealing to me, along with the practical connections.
3: Uh, I'm Dave. I'm an undergrad at UC Berkeley, uh, also under Alessandro. And I got interested in this protocol because uh, I was working on snarks for a while, and I thought it would be very nice to have, like, a succinct verifier snark. Previously, like, Aurora was a a linear verifier.
0: Is Fractal replacing this thing called Aurora? Is that what you've just built, or is it—what is it? What's the relationship? And what is Aurora, actually? Oh,
3: uh, Aurora is a, like— Prior Stark, which was for R1CS, and then the actual like the under, the protocol behind Fractal is sort of figures out a way to add pre-processing or holography to Aurora, which then uh, makes your verifier very efficient and then enables like recursion. Yeah, so you can think
2: of uh, Fractal as being a protocol which has the same structure as Aurora and solves the same problem, but it adds this additional feature that Aurora doesn't have, which is called pre-processing.
1: So that was the sort of explicit intent in setting out, like you wanted to do something like Aurora, but with preprocessing. Exactly. Or was there Mm -hmm. another aspect to it?
2: Yeah, exactly. So uh, Aurora already has a a lot of very nice properties. It achieves good proof length for Snarks in its class, and it has a fairly efficient prover but did not have this kind of nice property of pre-processing, which allows you to speed up verification a lot. Uh, and so Fractal was kind of an explicit attempt to take all of the good things about Aurora and kind of tack on this, uh, this extra feature.
1: We obviously want to dig in deeper into this, and uh, I don't know how exactly we'll get there. It's a very complicated topic, but uh, I think we, we do it through various angles and, and means of trying to, to analyze it. But the first thing that came up to me, and this is something that's like I notice as a trend, is talking about holographic proofs. What is a holographic proof? Uh, so a holographic proof is a proof you, in addition
2: to uh, having the kind of standard proof conversation, like you where you you have a proof that is provided by by the prover to verify, you also kind of before the beginning of time you you take your input, and you encode it using an error correcting code. So you, you take your input and you apply some encoding to it. The idea of this encoding is that uh, with assistance of the prover, the verifier no, le- no longer needs to read the entire input in order to, to be convinced of the of the statement. So I, can, I take my statement, I encode it with an error correcting code, and this means that now I don't need to look at the entire statement in order to be convinced that it's true. I can kind of look at some individual positions that I choose at random, then I can say with high confidence whether the statement is true or not based on just these positions and my interaction with the prover. Uh, So this leads to preprocessing because what I can then do is I can apply some transformation which takes this this kind of model where I have this encoded uh, version and I can convert it into a preprocessing routine.
0: The holographic proof then is not the preprocessing. It's preparing it to be preprocessed.
3: It's before you add the cryptography on top. So like this is still in the information theoretic or unconditionally sound protocol. And then you add cryptography in order to get a thing you can actually instantiate.
1: So holographic proof is like the theory that allows pre-processing. preprocessing.
3: Well, yeah, we're still in the random Oracle model at that point.
2: Yeah. So this is a the calligraphy is like the idealized model that allows you to do preprocessing.
0: Where did that term come from? Is this a long-standing cryptography term, or is it pretty recent that people are using it?
2: Uh, so it's actually fairly old. It came from I think this paper from 1991 by Fortnow and Lund where they're setting up this whole area of PCPs and program checking and all of this stuff. like It's like right back there at the roots of this probabilistic checking literature. And they were interested in precisely this problem of like if I have an, an input which is really long, but I want to verify, I want to, to check its validity very quickly, how can I do that? And you can show that it's not possible to do it unless you have this kind of, additional capability of encoding it with an error correcting code before you start.
0: I think actually that paper you just mentioned, it it rings a bell. I think we talked about that in the first episode we did with Ariel Gabizon. Mm -hmm. I think he brought that paper up. I remember trying to find it and like looking it up.
2: (laughs) It's kind of one of the classics. It's like a very, uh, extremely influential paper. And like uh, everything that that we're talking about, kind of all of these zk-snarks, they all owe a uh, great debt to this this particular work.
0: Was it actually, did it use the term holographic proof back then, or was it the concept was introduced back then? Because I've understood that the word holographic proof, as far as I understand, there's something like that in Planck, but they don't call it holographic proof. They call it something else.
2: Oh, yeah. So I think they call it holographic yeah. in, uh, in this BFL paper. This is oh, they the, do. The, the, the term comes from there. Yeah, it's We didn't kind of just come up with it.
0: Okay. And yeah. then what is what are other terms that are used to describe this exact or something similar to this?
2: They call it
3: uh, an algebraic interactive proof or something like that, I think. Yeah, it's there's like three concurrent works, roughly, like Planck, Marlin, and Darks, and everything. They all call it something different. It looks like <laughs> they just... As far as I can tell, it looks like they're just looking at security in the algebraic group model against algebraic adversaries. Uh, They're
2: they're talking about also some
3: idealized
2: uh, proof system model. Uh, They're not explicitly focused on preprocessing. So what what they are talking about actually is more of the encoding during the protocol rather than before, rather than of of the input. So what they mean, so they they use the, the term polynomial protocol, and what they mean by that is that what the the prover is saying in the protocol, uh, is guaranteed to be encoded as a polynomial. Uh, This is sort of orthogonal to the holography aspect. So the holography aspect says that I also am allowed to assume that the input is encoded using a low-degree polynomial. So the notion of algebraic holographic proof, which is is what is used in Marlin, combines both of these things. It says... It says that the input is encoded using a polynomial, and also all of the prover's messages are encoded using polynomials.
0: You just mentioned another paper there, Marlin, which I don't think we've actually talked about yet on this episode. We've definitely yeah. mentioned in the past. Maybe give a little bit of background on what Marlin is when it came out and how it relates to your work.
3: Right. So uh, Marlin came out roughly at the same time as Fonk uh, did, and it's it's using holography with these uh, polynomial commits. To essentially improve upon sonic. So it's in the same setting of having an updatable uh, trust setup. And so in Fractal, we improve upon the, uh, the Marlin's uh, algebraic holographic proof and convert it to the RSIOP setting, sort of the setting that we use for these Starks.
0: Did you say R-S... What, what did you just say? R-S-I-O-P?
3: Yeah. So for these Starks that are quite modular, there's an RSIOP, which is... When you talk about using error-correcting codes, and so you restrict everything to read Solomon codes. This is an error-correction code where you have a polynomial, uh, and you've committed, it to, say, a degree D polynomial, and you commit it to more than D points. So this gives you some error-correction properties. Then an IOP is uh, where you're just talking about rounds and messages, and then you get a stark at the end when you add cryptography.
0: What does IOP stand for? Uh, interactive Oracle Proof?
2: Uh, yeah, so so IOPs are kind of the basis for all of these proof systems in this family that Fractal belongs to. So an IOP uh, is a generalization of, it stands for Interactive Oracle Proof, is a generalization of an earlier notion called a PCP or probabilistically checkable proof, which has probably come up before, I guess, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, but just I guess just to recap. So a, a PCP uh, is essentially a proof string where I have random access into the string. Uh, as a verifier, I can look at the string and I can choose kind of random places in the in the string to query, and I can find out what the value of the string is at this point. And these were developed also in this paper, this uh, BFL paper. To kind of understand program checking, and then they became very, very important in complexity theory. But the reason that they're interesting to us is because of this paper of Sylvia Macaulay in 1994, where he explains how you convert a PCP into a SNARK. So this was actually the first construction of SNARKs. Um, this is called CS proofs. And an IOP is kind of a generalization of PCPs. And what IOPs are attempting to do is to kind of fix a deficiency in this construction or maybe a difficulty in this construction. Like what was the problem with, with CS proofs? Why don't we use them for everything? It's because PCPs are extremely complicated. So uh, CS proofs actually are like a super elegant construction. They are known to be post-quantum secure. They only use symmetric key cryptographies, so they're really fast uh, cryptographically. The problem is that the underlying object, this PCP, is extremely difficult to construct. Like it's, a, it's an enormously complicated object. And what IOPs are an attempt to do is to basically say, okay, we don't know how to construct PCPs, but we can build essentially the same thing using a very similar construction from this thing called an IOP. And what IOPs add to the mix is interaction. So a PCP is kind of a fixed string, and it just... You know, uh, the prover writes it down, he goes away. The verifier can look it. An IOP adds interaction to this, so the prover can write down a string. The verifier can then send a challenge. And then the prover can write down another string, and so on and so forth. This can repeat for some number of rounds. And this additional power allows you to design much more efficient protocols. And then what you can do is you can use kind of established cryptographic techniques to squash this interaction into a non-interactive proof which is what you a non-interactive argument which is what you wanted to begin with
0: That's interesting so it sort of went like static to interactive to non-interactive Exactly <laughs> And is the RS IOP the non-interactive version or is the RS part something else The this is Reed Solomon I believe what you just said
2: Yeah, so the the RSIOP is sort of akin to these uh, other things like AHP and Mm -hmm. polynomial protocols and stuff. It's like a more idealized model. You can convert from an RSIOP into an IOP. And the way that you do that is called low-degree testing, which I think is something that Ali talked about in his episode. So you have a protocol which allows you to basically take an RSIOP and enforce the, the RSIOP model in the IOP setting.
1: When you said PCPs are difficult to construct, do you mean that it's difficult like for a human to express the computation they want in that PCP or computationally difficult?
2: I mean computationally difficult. So actually PCPs can support the, the same expressive languages as, uh, as other things. So like circuits and rank one constraint systems, all of these things. The trouble is that when it comes to designing the PCP, you're really fighting against this non-interactive nature. And this means that actually writing code to build a PCP is very difficult. And the resulting thing will be extremely inefficient.
1: Right.
0: In the words that make up IOP, Mm -hmm. interactive, oracle, proof. We've sort of covered a little bit of the interactive and proof sort of understood, but why the term oracle? And just the reason I mentioned that too is like oracle has different meanings in different contexts, I imagine, unless it's the same. Actually, yeah, I'm curious to hear what does the oracle part of that mean? Why is it oracle?
3: Uh, so I assume you're, when you're talking about other contexts, you're referring to like the DeFi Oracle. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, it's actually a similar idea where like an Oracle is this thing that exists and you can ask it, give me the value of the Oracle at some point. The DeFi context, the point is generally time. Here it's at some like element in a in a field. And then the Oracle uh, gives you the result. And the idea of the Oracle is it's like, can't be tampered with. It's mm. like once you've, Give the oracle; it's set in stone forever. And so, in the IOP model, you talk about these oracles, where the, the prover will give you an oracle, and they can't touch it later on in the protocol. And then there's a question: How do you actually like materialize the oracle? And so, this is even in the interactive model; this is still idealized, because like, how do I give you an, an oracle? And so, you, you need cryptography, even in the interactive setting, to actually send the oracle. Well, and the way you do that in Starks is you make uh, a Merkle tree. You say that you're only, gonna, you're only allowed to look at the oracle on, on these points. And so then we can make a Merkle tree of those different points. And then I give you the Merkle root. And when you want to look at the, uh, the oracle at some point, you just take them. I give you the valuation and a Merkle tree authentication path.
1: So I think that is the same or similar to oracles as people might know it from a blockchain context. But in blockchains, you typically talk about a trusted oracle or an untrusted oracle. Mm-hmm. But an untrusted oracle is just like I don't know a user. It, it, it's, it's a weird <laughs> thing, and um, and yeah, typically oracle means that it's just some some source of info info you can trust. But in this case, it's you know you can trust it because you are actually providing Merkle proofs of the thing that the oracle is giving you.
0: I've always understood oracle is also kind of like reflective of real world information. It being brought, but maybe it's just that's one case of an oracle where like something in the real world is brought
1: in. I think that's specific to the blockchain context because oracles are only used to get data that is off-chain. Anything on-chain, we don't need an oracle for. So it's kind of automatically becomes that in the blockchain world. Okay. <laughs> but I don't think it's necessarily like a property of it.
3: Yeah. So like here, the prover is giving you an Oracle. So sort of the point of the protocol is that if they give you an incorrect protocol, like sort of, sorry, incorrect Oracle or just garbage, then the, the, the verifier should fail. Like it should be able to t- detect this.
2: What we mean by, by Oracle in this particular setting really is just a, a very large string or database that you can like look into and you are guaranteed that it doesn't change over time. Like once, if you, it can't kind of adapt to the queries that you're making to it, it's fixed over time. Yeah. So this uh, is the usual notion of Oracle and kind of theoretical computer science. Uh, I guess maybe there are other, mm-hmm. other ideas of what an Oracle means. Um, but in, in the case of Individual Oracle proofs, the important thing is that the Oracle is not able to kind of cheat adaptively. So it You you can write down whatever you like, but once it's written down, it's written down and you're not allowed to change it as a malicious, uh, as an adversary.
0: The term AHPs, you also just mentioned that. What does that stand for?
2: That stands for Algebraic Holographic Proof. Oh. Uh, Yeah, so it's uh, very similar to a holographic IOP, which is the thing that we use in fractal. Really, there's not a like from a at a high level, there's no difference between them. You should think about them as being the same thing. Um, So holographic IOPs and AHPs pretty much the same. Holographic RSIOPs and AHPs are pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. So uh, they both represent kind of the same demands uh, on your proof system. The only real difference is kind of the in for an AHP you care about what happens when you turn it into a snark using a polynomial commitment scheme. Uh, Whereas with a holographic RSIOP, you care about what happens when you turn it into a snark using this combination of a low-degree test and uh, this hash-based cryptographic compiler.
0: Cool. I think that's really good on definitions there.
1: (laughs) So... Let's take a slight step backwards and talk about Fractal and high level, you know, abstract level. What is Fractal and what did you actually achieve with this? Okay,
2: so Fractal is a transparent pre-processing snark, which is also post-quantum secure. And aim with Fractal was really to solve this problem of transparent recursion. Uh, so there has also been other work on transparent recursion uh, using a different approach, which came out kind of concurrently with Fractal, but the the intention was to be able to do r- recursion without trusted setup.
0: What was the other work?
2: So the, there was also uh, this this recent work, uh, Halo, due to Sean Jack rick and Dara Hopwood, where they also achieve some kind of transparent recursion, they use very different techniques to Fractal. Um, and this is kind of concurrent with uh, with us. So the thing I will say about that is that it is not post-quantum secure, Fractal is. And there are some other sort of smaller technical differences if you want to use it, but that's where it sits in relation to Halo. So this was, uh, yeah, so our intention was, was to enable you to do recursion without uh, a trusted setup.
0: Halo, Halo is also as I've understood it, in a comparable camp to what supersonics from Ben Fish and Benedict Buntz is, but fractal I never hear kind of put in that same category. So is supersonics dealing, is it comparable to Halo at a different point, or would you say fractals also comparable to the supersonics work or the darks? Mm,
3: so I guess Halo and supersonics have similar proof sizes, because they're both relying on discrete log-esque assumptions. And I guess they also have similar cryptographic assumptions. Whereas Fractal uh, has much larger proof sizes because of making fewer assumptions.
0: And is it the only one that would be post-quantum secure? Yes. And are you, like, have you also, I mean, what were the, what are the other features of Halo? And it's like universal, I mean, Halo's universal recursive is faster. Like what What? what it's was? It's transparent. The, oh, it's transparent. And you guys are too. So actually, would you be considered in the same kind of category as those two or more in the same category as Halo?
3: Uh, same category as Halo because supersonics don't recurse. Or not. no one's like, we, we don't know if they have efficient
0: recursion. Okay, got it.
1: So yeah, I, like there's two thoughts that immediately come to mind for me. One is I want to break down these, like we've already talked about holographic proofs pre-processing and like digging more into how that actually makes recursion and like i, I want to touch on that but just before that like transparent post-quantum secure and all of these things kind of make me go isn't this what starks are and why do starks exist now then <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, yeah okay so so Starks are also one of these iop-based stocks and so they have many of the same properties that Fractal does. So the difference between Fractal and Starks and kind of where you would use Fractal over Starks comes in the kind of computation that you're trying to do. Starks are very strong at doing very structured computation, kind of repetitive computation. For example, if you wanted to evaluate a hash function over and over again, then then probably a Starks is what you want. Uh, Fractal is very good at unstructured computation. Uh, this is something that stocks are not very good at, and they, a lot of the properties of stocks that are so wonderful for structured computation just don't carry over to the unstructured case. So if you just have an unstructured computation, then Fractal will work much better, and the reason is this preprocessing.
1: Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I, that makes sense. So let's talk about the preprocessing and in a previous episode, I wonder if we talked about this both with Plunk and with Coda, but I know we talked about it in the recent episode with Coda, um, is I asked the question, what is the trade-off with recursion? Why can't every snark recurse? And um, the answer is, well, you need this preprocessing trick. And what what is that? trick really then and like how how does it lead to recursion we already talked about what it is but how does that make recursion efficient
2: so what you need to do recursion is you need the verifier when verifying a circuit to run faster than the size of the circuit that you're verifying this is the essential thing that you need for recursion and the reason for this is that if you think about what happens when you recurse, when you recurse, you're proving a statement about the verifier accepting a proof. So now your statement, the, the circuit in your statement, is the verifier itself. If it's not the case that the verifier is smaller than the statement, then as you recurse, the circuit that you're trying to check will grow and grow and grow, uh, and this will become unsustainable. Uh, So in order to keep the circuit size small, it must be the case that the verifier is smaller than the circuit that it's checking or runs faster than the circuit that it's checking. In order to do this, so initially this should sound impossible because the verifier, in order to check a circuit, should know what the circuit is that it's checking. It needs to be able to read it. And if you don't have any additional assumption, then this is actually impossible. So one way of getting around this is to use this preprocessing. So you take your circuit and you condense it into some small digest uh, using preprocessing. And then you can achieve this property of having the verifier be smaller than the circuit that's checked.
1: Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't really have any follow-up questions. Yeah, that actually was really helpful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ooh, makes sense like. Yeah. Uh, so are there
0: okay, are there other techniques that people are exploring to make recursion more efficient besides just the pre-processing part and this making the verifier um, more efficient?
2: So there are a lot of interesting things that happen when you recurse because What you're doing is you're taking your your verifier, which is checking the computation, and now you want to verify the computation of the verifier, which means you need to think about things that you otherwise wouldn't think about.
3: Yeah, so like one example is that with Fractal, we're assuming your initial computation is very unstructured. And I guess most of your process is what you do. But in Fractal, the verifier still has a decent structure to it. One example is Merkle-Tree authentication paths. You have to verify a lot of these. But a tree authentication path itself is very structured. You take a hash function and you apply it like a bunch of times. And a hash itself is very structured. You take a round function and apply it a bunch of times. So this means that there's you can probably exploit this somehow when you recurse.
0: Oh, so that, oh, that could be another kind of chance. That would be another place to look for in order to make recursion better. Right. Yeah. I didn't say that well, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Words.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, another really good uh, example of this happening. So you've probably heard of stark friendly hash functions.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So one of the big uh, applications of stark friendly hash functions is that if your verifier needs to evaluate a hash function, as our verifier does because it's doing these Merkle treats, then you're going to want that hash function to be stark friendly or fractal friendly. It's basically the same thing because you're going to want to prove that the hash function is correctly evaluated. So this like completely changes the trade-offs in designing verification algorithms because now it doesn't really matter how fast your hash function is on your computer what you care about is how fast your hash function is inside of the SNAP.
0: Going back to that question that, Frederick, you just asked about wh- what does that mean for Starks? Like, if you're able to take advantage of the uh, preprocessing idea, you're able to take advantage of these hash, f- Stark-friendly hashes. Yeah, how does, how does Fractal then differentiate itself from Starks still?
3: So, Starks are still starting from a high-structured computation and this actually lets you get better constants. Like, by leveraging the structure directly, you don't take a blow up by converting to a generic format, the generic format being R1CS. And so this lets you get better proof-of-time constants, which also can lead to better proof sizes or verifier times. But it's very, like, context-dependent, because, like, it's hard to talk about or compare a sync representation in SNARK to, like, a pre-processing SNARK in general, because it depends on how succinct or like how structured your problem is that you care about.
1: Something we haven't explained very well or dug into very much on the podcast is the, the structure of computation, the way you express your program in a Stark. Uh, We have talked quite a lot about R1 CS, but so is the difference essentially that in fractal you're using R1 CS and that's your, your unstructured computation. And then in Starks, you have, you know, as sort of Starkware people have explained, they have this VM model, essentially, that at each step of the computation, it outputs some some additional, you know, p- bit of proof. And so in this VM model, it, you can efficiently exploit the fact that it is a structured computation. Um, and, and so does it boil down to these two like computational models or the cryptography and proving structure that's at the top them, if you know what I mean.
3: So they don't have to be orthogonal, for example. Like Ariel talked about this a bit in the Planck thing, but Turbo Planck is sort of, and this custom gates line of work is taking R1 CS or something R1 CS unstructured like, and then saying, can we add uh, custom gates or can we add sort of Stark like logic on top? And something you can similarly do with, like, fractal. Mm.
1: I see. That's cool. So you could kind of mix the two <laughs> computational models.
2: Yeah. Uh, we also have a work which does something more Stark-like for R1CS. So you can essentially design your computation in an R1CS model, and if it's sufficiently structured, you can still do kind of Stark-like things with it. The format is not necessarily the, the question. It's more like what, like, what does your computation look like? Kind of at a fundamental level, is it structured or is it not structured? If it's structured, then you can avoid kind of the overhead that is associated with pre-processing it. And there is some. And if it's unstructured, then there's nothing you can do. You kind of have to pre-process.
0: Does Fractal borrow from any other protocols or any other concepts that have come before it? When you guys were developing it,
3: it builds on Marlin's protocol. Marlin itself, like, figured out how to add pre-processing to Aurora to get a sync verifier. This is like a, this is a breakthrough in I guess this protocol design. And then uh, for Fractals' actual like IOP protocol, we then like took Marlin's AHP and then like converted it to the RSIOP setting because there's some subtle differences that make the pro- the protocol as specified in the paper have very bad constants in the rsiop setting and then we found this like sort of trick to reduce one round off that protocol
1: what does that work look like i'm always fascinated by this say you want to take the ahp from over here and convert it to the rsiop setting over here and like do you sit down in front of your computer and google that like how do you actually do that work (laughs)
2: uh i guess you you uh Take some people who have a lot of experience in designing RSIOPs, and you you know look at the ISI uh, you go look at the HP over here, and you you think, okay, what would that look like if it were an RSIOP? These things are very similar in a lot of ways. And so this is the the hard part was sort of already done by Marlin. Like the creative part of actually coming up with this protocol was was mostly done by Marlin. The kind of technical work for moving from AHP to to RSIOP to IOP uh, was something that we'd already had some experience in from writing the Aurora paper, and so you know the steps are maybe not straightforward, but at least kind of they were set out already in this previous work.
1: How much time does it take? Like you know, from this initial idea of I think we we should you know do this to you have the paper done. Well, what's the timeline?
3: Oh. Uh, having the paper done was a uh, a lot longer because like the key contribution of the paper was less of this protocol, more so like recursion and all the steps to like and formalizations to get it. Yeah, so I guess we were done in about six
2: months, maybe less than that. Yeah, I, I don't recall exactly when when the thing officially started.
3: I I, I measure this. We had a working protocol like the day before ZCon one started. This is like when we had the rational sum check idea to fix the quadratic problem, quadratic degree.
2: Yeah, so I mean, it depends on how much care you want to take when you when you write things. If you're publishing for academic conferences, then you have to be, you know, very careful when you're writing. You have to write a bunch of definitions and proofs and things like that. It's very time consuming. So probably from uh, from idea to paper takes uh, probably like three months from like well-formed idea to written paper. But as Dev said, there's a lot of stuff besides the protocol that goes on in this paper. Uh, so we take a, another look at recursion from a formal cryptographic perspective. We prove that everything works. We prove that everything also works in the presence of quantum computers. This is a kind of something that hadn't really been looked at since the first paper on recursion, which was in 2013 or something like that. Yeah,
0: PCTP. Yeah. Mm. That that I think that's what Isaac actually highlighted in that episode was that in the fr- in the fractal paper you have a very clear clarification about what makes recursion work. And that was something he highlighted. And I guess this sounds like that was a lot of your work then. It was more like researching and checking why I guess if and why this works. Mm-hmm
2: yeah so actually we we had one particular goal in mind, which was, so to date, essentially the only approach to recursion that has worked is this pre-processing type approach. So there are other ways that you could try to achieve it, but uh, somehow, you know the the only thing that's really made it to practice is uh, is pre-processing. Um, and we wanted to pin down some formal mathematical reason why that's the case, and this is what we do in Fractal. So we show that basically preprocessing gives you an asymptotic improvement over other methods potential methods during recursion.
1: Something that I've always been curious with recursion and that I've gotten mixed messages on is whether or not it um, worsens the security of the setup. So, there's some arguments for you have to use a smaller key length or something for it to be practical and so it's like breakable or whatever or like, and then there's another argument on like the deeper you recurse, the more insecure the whole construction becomes. And then you have other people who say, no, 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 this is not at all the case and I don't know, like it shouldn't be less secure. What's your guys's take on this uh, what How does recursion affect security?
2: So okay, so from a cryptographic like provable security perspective, there is something that happens when you recurse, which is quite technical, but essentially inside, in in the proof once you the, the deeper you recurse, kind of the more you need from your underlying cryptographic primitive in order to make things work. This doesn't translate into an attack, like we don't know how to exploit this in any way, but there is some kind of artifact of the proof that causes this to happen. In terms of this uh, stuff about key length, I think this is maybe to do with the specific approach to recursion using elliptic curves. Like prior to, to fractal and halo, there was really only one way to practically achieve recursion, which is to use these things called Cycles of pairing-friendly elliptic curves. So
3: this is a, an object which... Uh, it's a, it's a like sort of hard-to-find algebraic object. And I think to date, we only know of one class of these. It's the MNT 4-6 cycle. I don't know if that means anything. Uh, but essentially, this it's not very not ideal. So because of that, you have a much larger field Which then means that your SNARK running time is much slower, and if you're doing like cryptography and stuff on this, your public keys have to be much bigger. Normally, you do elliptic curve cryptography over, say, a 256-bit field slash curve, so then that's you know 256 bits per key. Now we're at around say 700 bits, but that's more due to like sort of the algebraic object you need to recurse that setting, not that recursion itself lowers security.
2: Right. Yeah. So in particular, with the type of recursion that we do in Fractal, uh, you don't need to worry about these things. You can choose your field as you like. The only thing that you really have to worry about is kind of the algebraic complexity of your hash function
3: over that field. Well, and as a practical matter, sort of the running time of your hash function, yeah. this ends up mm-hmm. bottlenecking your proof time.
1: So one thing that I think I saw is that this is actually implemented as well, and that you've been running experiments with it and actually trying to, to use this in practice. It's not just a paper. There's some code attached to that as well. Yeah, um, the code's online know. at uh,
3: libiop.org. It's a basically a GitHub repo.
1: And was that code that you wrote for this paper? Is it like you're modifying something or, uh, you know, and... What quality is that code? Is it something that you would go out and recommend that that a blockchain be used, <laughs> like based on definitely. today, or is it like, you know, academia code? Uh,
3: it's definitely like uh, academia code. Like, there's been no code audit yet. Uh, I think you know, if there was one, then maybe it'd be suitable for blockchain, depending on their security preferences. The library stuff we've built for, uh, like we've sort of built to measure performance of these starks. But the verifier like, circuit is actually not too large. So this is a potentially auditable code path.
1: Cool. Uh, what language is it written in?
3: C++. It, it, sort of, it was sort of inheriting from a bunch of the Libsnark work, like the finite fields and et cetera, and like FFTs. And it was started before the Rust snark ecosystem really like blew up.
0: Were you, I guess you were, were you developing this as you were writing the paper or is this something you write the paper and then you do an implementation?
3: So for Fractal, we actually started the implementation in parallel to like working out the details of the idea.
0: Does it, is that how most of these papers are actually written? Like, do you often need to be seeing it in action in a weird way or like putting the pieces together in order to actually know if you're on the right path?
2: that really depends on what you're aiming to say so it's perfectly reasonable to put out a paper with no implementation if what you're trying to say is something kind of you know cryptographic and theoretical here we wanted to demonstrate the feasibility of something on a real computer and to give numbers and kind of we we had some we wanted to compare to some you know competing works and to do that you really need to have an implementation when you publish.
1: I like that the snark world has, has moved to kind of more of this tone of having code <laughs> <than> being able <laughs> to run it. Uh, maybe it's because it's a more competitive space. I don't know. But there's many areas of academia where if there is anything published, it's like not usable code at all. It's not not intended to be used, just like some throwaway Python code or whatever to, to prove that it's possible to write an implementation. Um, So it's nice that, like, there exists code and, and it's actually, like, runnable.
0: What do you guys, what do you, like, what do you want to see happen with Fractal? Do you see Fractal as sort of, like, a piece of research to be worked on and pushed forward with the next sort of protocol proposal? Or do you want to see this be built for real? Like, what, yeah, what would you envision for this
2: Uh, Well, from my perspective, I think that Fractal is not the end of the road for this type of protocol. Mm -hmm. I am hoping that somebody, possibly us or someone else, will build kind of a Fractal Plus that improves upon the parameters of Fractal. And so, yeah, I think that where Fractal sits is that it demonstrates that something is possible, but there is a lot of scope to improve upon it.
0: I'm just wondering if it's like, should we be looking at Alessandro's research team for future uh, iterations of this, or could it be found anywhere?
2: So I think in terms of the expertise that exists, I think Alessandro has amassed a fair amount of it. And, and like in terms of the, the people who would be able to improve upon Fractal, a lot of them work with Alessandro directly. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, uh, there, are, there are plenty of talented people in the space, and it could come from any of them. Mm -hmm. I I suppose fractal in particular, because it's a little bit more like of a distant research direction, uh, in particular because we're kind of focusing on the post-quantum aspect, then I would imagine that it's more likely to come from within academia
3: than from industry. It's sort of unclear so far how the constants are going to compare between sort of fractal or these start constructions and these pairing-based constructions. And, you know, with their rate of development, on all in both research and actual code writing, the frontier changes so quick. So I think it'll be a, a couple of years if we actually have a definite answer, like which approach gets us faster or more production-ready code.
0: Would you say there's a lot of borrowing between different departments from these different schools? Because, like, I mean, right now, when I was over in SF, there was clearly, like, there's the Dan Bonet crew, and then there's the Berkeley crew, and then there's the Halo people, and then there's the Stark folks and the Technion folks. And like, would you say that there's like a ton of overlap or cross kind of pollination between these groups? I, I know that everybody knows each other, and I'm sure that there's definite um, sharing of ideas.
2: So to some extent, there is a, a theme that kind of each group works on, and they're, they're distinct in that but there is a lot of cross-pollination. I mean, I've I worked a lot with uh, with Ellie Bensasan. And, you know, we, we are working at the moment with Bendik Boots from from Stanford. So I, I think that's uh, definitely not isolated. But there is sort of a somehow a culture in these things that, like, different groups work on different things.
0: Yeah.
1: Is it competitive at all? Is it, like... This time, Berkeley's gonna like <laughs> screw <laughs> those Stanford guys. Like, we're gonna have the better paper. Yeah, uh, go Bears. So,
2: <laughs> maybe a little bit in a, in a friendly sort of way, but uh, thankfully, the things that we work on at Berkeley and the, the things that, that are worked on at Stanford sort of complementary to each other. Mm. So, it actually, you know, we're not working on exactly the same stuff. And I think this is helpful because this means that we can, you know, have a lot of collaboration without worrying about stepping on each other's toes
0: nice so I do wonder uh, I've become a little bit curious at times about like the motivation of some of the people that work on these technologies and these protocols like do you feel I'm kind of asking both of you do you feel that you come to this because the science is neat because the math is challenging or are there some other kind of visions you see for these types of protocols or some like maybe societal impacts that influence you and maybe encourage you to work on it?
2: Uh, So perhaps Dev and I have different answers about this. So I personally, as I alluded to at the beginning, I'm really interested in this because of the kind of mathematical implications because of the relations to theoretical computer science. And there's like this idea that we're exploring the notion of proof, which is very exciting. I also, like, find it very fulfilling to work on these problems. Kind of, you know, they're, they're mathematically interesting and they're, they're deep. Uh, and kind of the practical applications
3: are sort of an icing on the cake. What about you? I got started with this stuff and I find it fun because I get to do lots of, like, fun math. But I think the re- there's a lot of things I find fun that have fun math. The reason I think these are sort of special is that they have these sort of meaningful applications all over the place. Like I think a, a society where we use validity proofs everywhere is much better than one where we have trust baked in.
1: Cool. So to wrap up, I'm curious, what's next for you guys? This paper has been published. What are you working on now and in the short-term foreseeable future?
3: Well, one thing we work on is uh, cleaning up the code for Fractal.
1: Like We've sort
3: of released the pre-processing variance code And now we're cleaning up the recursion code, then we'll do a final release of that. Then another thing we started looking into is, now we have recursion. How can we sort of bootstrap off recursion to further improve these snarks? What else can we do than just saying we have a recursive snark? Can we actually use the fact that we can recurse to improve these asymptotics or constants? Is this something that's like evidence from PCPs? Like the famous PCP theorem is achieved by doing a similar recursion of two different types of PCPs. So maybe something similar can hold for Starks. Uh, yeah, so the, what I'm working on at the moment, I'm
2: thinking about the cryptographic implications of, of Snarks. There's a lot of interesting kind of cryptographic foundations behind Snarks. For example, there was a paper in 2011 that said that essentially Snarks are impossible. People built them anyway, and there's a lot of like interesting questions about kind of what is the limits of provable security for SNARKs? Uh, And also for one-round arguments, which is, you know, the thing kind of above SNARKs, like you have a little bit of interaction, but not very much. These questions are kind of very, in some sense, they're, they're not particularly practical because no matter what the answer is to them, people will continue doing the same thing in the real world. Like we believe that all of these constructions are secure and we have no evidence to think otherwise. Um but somehow there is in the in the underlying kind of cryptographic theory that there are some holes, and there is a there are a lot of things that we don't know and uh so I'm interested in trying to sort of plug some of
0: these gaps very cool. well, good luck on that thank you. and thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us get a little bit more of a sense for fractal and also helping us with some of these definitions that you've just given us. These terms we've been using, we've been hearing the IOPs, the AHPs. I think it was really nice to clarify that.
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Cool. And to our listeners, thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening.